What makes you angry? The researcher sits on your living room sofa with his pencil poised. He waits for your answer. He says he is from the National Society for the Prevention of Ulcers, and his group is doing a survey in your neighborhood to collect research data. What makes me angry, you echo, trying to think of something to say? Well, whenever the checkout line is closed, just as I'm getting to the cash register, that really makes me angry, you say. I suppose a lot of people feel that way. Yes, he says, that's actually one of our more popular responses. Is there anything else that makes you angry? Well, you say, warming up to the idea now that you know you're in good company. I, I get angry when some drivers go 35 miles an hour in a 50 mile an hour zone. I mean, it's really frustrating when you get behind someone and you're in a hurry and they're just a slowpoke. Yes, the researcher says, that is also one of our most popular responses. Uh, a lot of people get angry at other motorists, especially on the Beltway. And then there's the postal service, you say. I can't for the life of me figure out how they expect working people to ever buy stamps. I mean, I come sailing up to the window at 4.58, and they already have the screen down, and they have the audacity to tell me my watch is slow. Postal service he says solemnly, bending over his clipboard. And that's nothing compared to how I feel when my neighbor blows his grass clippings on my lawn, you tell him. Why, there are times I get so angry at him, I could just grab him by the throat. Well, well, says the researcher, this sounds really serious. Grass clippings on the driveway. Well, he says, I guess that's about all. I think I'll be on my way. But wait, you said, I'm just getting started. Don't you want to hear about the other things that make me angry? Well, he says, I'd, I'd really love to stay, but I've really got a lot to do. And besides, the next thing is you'll probably mention how annoyed you get at researchers asking you silly questions. So I'll go. I'll, go, I'll let myself out. But you say as you call after him, don't you want to hear what my mother-in-law said to me at the wedding reception? Friends, we live in an angry world, but a world that's angry for all the wrong reasons. We live in a world where neighbors shake their fists at each other across the backyard fence, and drivers curse at each other for going too slow or failing to use turning signals. Parking lot attendants get called out for making change too slowly. We growl about the waste of our tax money when new city buildings go up. We write our congressmen when there's an increase in the social security rate. We get hot under the collar when anyone gossips about us in the church foyer. And on Sunday morning, the grass clippings are blown back on his driveway. Ours is certainly an angry world, but angry for all the wrong reasons. At the heart of about 95% of all that makes us angry is the belief that someone, somewhere, is doing me dirty. That my freedom, my dignity, my reputation is being trampled on and I better stand up because no one else is going to. In the memorable words of the New Hampshire state motto, 
which you can find emblazoned on every license plate. Live free or die. We are passionately in favor of justice so long as it is justice for us. We're strong defenders of human rights so long as they are our human rights. We champion the cause of freedom by which we mean our freedom to think and say and do and spend exactly as we want to. I think if we're candid, we'd admit that most of the anger that flushes through our veins is just another illustration of our sin and our self-centeredness. But it feels good. It feels righteous. It feels wonderful to run up that old flag from the Revolutionary War. Don't tread on me. But I tell you, friends, this is not the way of the cross. Arguing for our rights, protecting our privileges, defending our reputations may seem ever so natural, but the gospel says that it is not the way of Jesus. In our passage of scripture today in Mark 11, we look at a moment in Jesus' life when he was angry, very angry, but for all the right reasons. This story, perhaps more than any other recorded in the Gospels, reminds us that it is possible to fulfill Paul's command. Be angry, but sin not. Be angry, but sin not. When we put together a chronology of Jesus' life and ministry from the accounts that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John give us, we discover that this dramatic scene of Jesus in the temple recorded in Mark 11 wasn't the first time Jesus got angry over conditions in the house of God. Early on in his ministry, just after his first miracle at the wedding feast of Cana, Jesus had traveled to Jerusalem to participate in a feast. There in the courts of the temple, he saw the cattle milling about. He heard the sheep bleeding. He heard the doves cooing. He heard the clink of coins changing hands. He saw the money changers making exorbitant profits off the little people of the land who had to purchase these things for sacrifices. And Jesus was angry. He was angry enough to do what none of us would have dared to do. He made a whip out of twisted pieces of rope and he chased the whole merchandising lot of them clear off the property. Coins went flying, doves went flying, tempers went flying. But Jesus was determined. And in a matter of moments, he was standing virtually alone in the silent courts of the temple. His first public act in the city of Jerusalem was a passionate display of righteous indignation at the corruption and abuses being perpetrated by the priests and the rulers and the merchants, and it earned him, it earned him their undying hatred. Jesus, like a prophet out of the Old Testament, had come between the merchants and their prophets. And they wanted him dead. 
Three years had passed since that dramatic confrontation, but apparently very little had changed in the system of the temple. On the Monday before his crucifixion, according to Mark, Jesus was again in the temple. Again he saw the milling cattle, the sheep, the turtledoves. Again he watched as unscrupulous temple officers took advantage of the piety of simple people by inflating the prices for the animals they needed for sacrifice. How much were you willing to pay for a lamb that would atone for your sins? Ten temple shekels? Twenty? Fifty? How much did you want to be right with God? How much did you want to go home to your house knowing that your sin was forgiven? Could any price really, really be too high? And so the very people, the little people of the land, whom the law of Moses was committed to defending, were being abused and mistreated and defrauded by those who claimed to be upholding the law of Moses. And off in the shadows of the temple courts, the one whom scripture calls the Lamb of God because he would save the world for free, he got angry. As he listened to the bickering over sacrifices and offerings, He began feeling welling up inside of him what John the Revelator so aptly called the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus was angry for all the little people. As if it weren't enough that the poor people of Judea were being cheated by their own religious leaders, Jesus was particularly indignant that all of this was happening in the part of the temple called the Court of the Gentiles. According to temple policy, if you hadn't been born a Jew, but had converted to Judaism, you weren't allowed to enter the main portion of the temple where only born and bred Jews could worship. You had to stay outside in the court of the Gentiles. You had to stay behind a retaining wall that forever reminded you of your inferior and second-tier status. The closest you could get to the presence of God was this marketplace where good Jews came to haggle over the price of animals. As a Gentile convert, your only place to pray in the temple grounds was this barnyard where sheep were bleeding and cattle were frightened and doves were flying and merchants were arguing. And the heart of Jesus, as it always does, The heart of Jesus went out to all of those Gentile converts, some of whom had traveled hundreds of miles to be at Passover. These believers were not only shut out of the inner courts of the temple, but they literally had to shut their eyes and stop their ears to avoid being distracted as they tried to pray to the God of the universe. My house shall be a house of prayer for all. Jesus got angry for all the Gentile believers. 
But not only were the little people of the land and the Gentile converts being abused by this corrupt system, but Jesus saw that those with physical illnesses and afflictions were being discriminated against as well. While the temple officers had plenty of room for cattle stalls and dove pens and places for noisy sheep, they didn't seem to have any room for people who were blind or disabled, or had a disease. They had a vision of the temple as a place for perfect people, perfect, healthy Jewish people like themselves. And they actively discouraged those with physical disadvantages, those incapacitated by disease, from being in the temple. The prevailing view of the time of Jesus was that Physical illness was almost always an indication of spiritual sin. Even his Jesus' disciples weren't immune to this idea. Remember the day they asked him when they met a blind man? Who sinned, Lord? This man or his parents? That he was born blind. In the time of Jesus, those with physical handicaps went through life with the extra burden of knowing that everyone attributed their affliction to some evil in their heart. Except for the one lame man whom we find accosting Peter and John outside the temple gates, we don't find the lame or the blind or the diseased involved in the life of the temple. They congregated at places where they hoped they might get some miraculous cure by the pool of Bethesda. Or if they were lepers, they lived out in the countryside under the open sky, out of contact with society. Jesus was angry for all of the physically afflicted as well. In her insightful commentary on this same chapter in Mark 11, Ellen White reminds us that there was yet one more group whom Jesus was intent on including in the life of the temple. As in so many of the world religious systems of that era and of this era, children, children were meant to be seen but never heard. The assumptions of first century Judaism were remarkably like those of much of 21st century Christianity. Those who are young in years can't have an age-appropriate faith. Wait until you're older, the system seemed to say. Wait until you've been around the spiritual block a few times, you know, circling for a place to park among the righteous. Wait until you have acquired a a few years of disappointments and cynicism and fear and doubts, and, and then, then you'll be ready to enter the congregation of the righteous. Along with the non Jews and the poor and the physically challenged, children were routinely excluded from the life of the temple as though God only prefers to talk with people 40 or more years of age. And the Son of God, who chose of his own free will to be born an infant and to grow up as a child, 
and to experience the powerlessness of children and the spiritual disrespect that so often inflicted on children. He got angry when he saw that they were being excluded from the place that he intended them to find him. Jesus had every reason at that moment of his life to be caught up with the drama of his own life just as we are so often caught up in the drama of our lives. No one would have blamed him if on this day, four days before his death at the hands of his enemies, he had just said, you know, I need a little peace and quiet here. I'm going inside with all the perfect Jewish types. No one would have faulted him if he had been caught up with the concerns of his own ministry. He was being attacked and slandered. In 72 hours, he would be betrayed by one of his closest disciples. Jesus had every reason to be thinking only of himself on that fateful Monday. But that was precisely the day when he decided to get passionately involved in standing up for the rights of the poor and the foreigners and the handicapped. And the children. Just at the moment when we would have been angry at what was happening to us, Jesus was angry at what was happening to the abused and the downtrodden and the weak and the young. Jesus got angry for the right reasons, and it's about time we did too. The longest running sin in the life of the Christian church, my friends, is not some theological heresy. The greatest failure among those who claim to be disciples of this carpenter from Nazareth isn't our historic disagreements about communion or baptism or church structure or ritual or even the form of worship we should use. The most persistent iniquity among us is our inability or our refusal to get passionate about the things that Jesus was passionate about. To love what he loved, to hate what he hated, to care for what he cared for, and to overthrow again what he once overthrew. Matthew says he actually turned the money changers' tables over. How is it, friends? How is it that a Lord who cared so little for respectability and propriety How is it that he could be followed by such a passionless group as us? How is it that the Lord's anger at injustice done to the poor and the refugees and the disabled, his passion, his continuing passion for little people and their causes, how has it been so watered down among us that many of us can't think of anything except gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Friends, it is not only in the tender, comforting parts of his personality that we are supposed to be like him. We should burn with his godly anger when we see children abused, when we see the disabled shut out of public places, 
When we see the elderly forced to live on dog food because their pensions have been stolen on Wall Street or mismanaged by politicians. We should participate in his righteous indignation when we see African Americans and Hispanics and South Asians and women routinely ignored and discriminated against in employment and when racism and sexism raises its head in our community and sometimes even in our community of faith. It ought to make us hot all over when we discover that there are still children dying in this state because their parents don't have access to proper medical care. The real difference between Jesus and many of his modern disciples is that while he was willing to go for a cross in standing up for the rights of others, a great many of us wouldn't be caught dead standing up for anyone's rights but our own. Where has his passion gone? His passion is not just the last seven days of his life, my friends. His passion was his entire life. Not only have we largely lost the attitudes of Jesus in his church, but we have often retreated from his godly actions as well. And that makes, in its own way, a kind of sorry sense. Godly actions always flow out of godly attitudes. Jesus had the courage to tip over the tables of the money changers and to drive out the cattle mongers because he didn't try to suppress or repress the God-given emotions that were welling up inside of him. He didn't stop and say, you know, I wonder. I wonder how upsetting the money changers is going to affect the financial fortunes of my kingdom. He didn't pause and ask, you know, I wonder what conflict with the priests and rulers is going to have on the political success of my three-point campaign. He didn't hire a Wall Street firm to go out and scout out the territory and help him design a program that would go down as smooth as syrup. He turned their tables over. Friends, the issue that stares the Christian church and the issue that stares this congregation squarely in the face is whether we are going to let the Holy Spirit upset our much-prized respectability long enough to actually do some good in this world. I know just as surely as I'm standing here that the Spirit of God has been prompting some of you in this congregation to stand up for the rights of people you know are being abused or hurt or mistreated. You've seen the evil for what it is. It's a threat to an innocent person and it's a front to the justice of God. You recognize the unmistakable voice of God's spirit urging you to bring a little bit of justice into your corner of the world. To confront that abusive parent to talk with that racist classmate, to remind the shop foreman that the law says that he must treat all people, black and white, Hispanic, Asian, South Asian, male and female, young and old, he has to treat them all equally. Whether you gained your understanding in a flash of insight or whether it's been growing as a passion within you over the years, the Spirit of God has already given you the insight and the eyesight to see it clearly.
but you're worried. I'm worried. We're worried that people who stand up for others often get taken down themselves. People who upset the system, the evil system, don't get treated very fairly sometimes. People who care about justice don't always get treated justly. People who are passionate in favor of the poor and the refugees and the disabled and the young, they sometimes get themselves crucified. People who risk their reputations and their lives sometimes get nailed to crosses. My friends, the way we are talking about is certainly the way of the cross. And that's exactly what the Lord we claim to follow once said. Except a man deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He is not worthy of me. It's not an easy way. It's not a carefree way. It's not a smooth road with never a rock to trip over or an ambush hiding in the shadows. There are dangers for anyone who sets out on the way of the cross to follow Jesus. The powerful, the powerful are going to line up to make you pay the price for challenging their hegemony and their income. The elites are going to oppose you for threatening the social position and the standing that they have had for so long. And those who call themselves the righteous will probably tell you that all of the conditions which the Spirit of God is, has awakened you to, oh, those are just political issues. Those are just social issues. Those are just cultural issues with which the church of Jesus should have no contact. But Jesus says it is a road that every disciple must walk. Over in the 25th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells us what the standards of his judgment of our lives will be. In that great and final picture of when he will separate the sheep from the goats, when human beings will be measured in the sight of heaven, we discover that many of the things we want included in the investigation aren't even going to be there. We want him to notice our 30 years of faithful tithe paying. And all he says is, did you give a cup of cold water? We want him to ask us questions about our understanding of end time prophecy. And all he wants to ask is, what did you do to clothe the naked? We would rather that he investigate our orthodox theology and our perfect Sabbath school attendance and our fastidiousness in going vegan. And he says, where were you when the innocent man went to jail? We want him to notice that we didn't go swimming on Sabbath. We ate only vegilinks. And he declares, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. Friends, the great echoing cry of Old Testament religion was the prophet's call to passionate living. 
to defend the poor and the widow and the fatherless and the stranger and the weak and the overwhelming mandate of New Testament religion, the religion of Jesus, the religion called Christianity, this movement called Adventism, which was born as a reform movement and will end as a reform movement. It's that we learn to care about something more than our personal salvation. That we reach out to the world in the name of a crucified Lord, that we love the world, that we change the world, that we bring a little bit of justice into our corner of the world. You can't be a Christian and refuse to get involved. You can't shut your eyes and shut your ears to the sights and sounds of the oppressed people of the world and then expect that the Father of all will look down with love on you. You can't shut your ears to the cries of those who are being cheated and manipulated and discriminated against and then say, God, hear my prayer. You can't be apathetic to the plight of the homeless or the jobless or the breadless or the waterless and still expect God to give you more and more and more. If our Christianity isn't the passionate kind, if our Christianity is only a kind of mild-mannered, even-tempered pursuit of social respectability, then, my friends, we are taking the name of Jesus Christ in vain, for he was nothing like that. And the old commandment says that the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. The story is told that once in a far-off kingdom, an old king lay on his deathbed. And he called in his son, the crown prince, to give him last instructions on how to run the kingdom after he was gone. They talked about treaties and armies and finances and decrees. And, and finally, the old king turned to his son and said, now, now one more thing. Promise me. Promise me that you will rule with justice. Oh, Father, said the prince, have no fear on that point. I will certainly deal justly with all the nobles and dukes across the land. Why, without their alliances and their support, my kingdom would collapse. I will certainly deal justly with the nobles. And who else, asked the old king, who else should you bring justice to? Well, said the prince, I... I suppose I should deal justly with all the merchants and the businessmen. Without their business and their industries, the kingdom would get poor. I will certainly be just with the businessmen. And who else, said the old king, his aged face beginning to flush with irritation, who else should you bring justice to? Oh, said the prince, I almost forgot. I should deal justly with the soldiers too. Without their swords and their spears and their courage, my kingdom would soon be captured by our enemies. I will certainly, certainly be just with the soldiers. And who else, 
asked the old king, the fire now flashing from his dimming eyes. Who else should you bring justice to? But father, said the prince, I, I've already told you. I'll be just with the nobles. I'll, I'll be just with the businessmen. I'll be just with the soldiers. I mean, these are the people my kingdom rests on. These are the people who can help me. These are the people who can give me what I want. And who else? Said the old king in a final flash of passion. Who else should you bring justice to? Well, said the prince, I suppose you want me to say that I'll deal justly with the poor, but I don't see it'll do me any good. They can't help me in politics. They can't help me with finances. They can't help me in war. In fact, Father, they can't do me any good. Precisely, said the old king. Precisely. And that's why they deserve justice more than all the rest. Because they don't have any influence. And they don't have any money. And they don't have any swords and spears. They deserve justice from the king because they can get it from no one else and nowhere else. Promise me. Promise me that you will prove yourself, my son, by bringing justice to the poor people of my kingdom. You are their only hope. Friends, the charge to us today is identically the same. To prove ourselves children of a heavenly king. To prove ourselves followers of that carpenter from Nazareth. To prove ourselves disciples of the Lord who still has the nail prints in his hands. To prove ourselves worthy of following him by bringing justice to those who will get it from no one else and nowhere else. We are their only hope. Like Esther of old, we have been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. Let righteousness roll down like waters and justice like an ever-flowing stream. And when you fear, when you fear that you might lose your nerve, remember, he turned their tables over. He turned their tables over. Maybe the Spirit of God wants you to make a commitment today. Take that commitment card in your bulletin. If what you see there is what the Spirit of God is asking you to commit to, mark it there and give it to someone here as a testimony that you have heard God's word to you today.